Well, hello everyone. Wesley and Stacy Campbell again with conversions. And today we have the most amazing personality, somebody you've probably seen on TV a number of times, Dr. Mark Sharona from Florida. And he comes to us with an amazing testimony. Now, we just got done a short time ago with Lance Wall now. Now, these two guys are buddies. They hang out. I mean, if they would have been in high school, it would have been trouble, trouble, trouble. In fact, most of us would have been that way. But anyway, <clears throat> we're just going to jump right into it. So, Mark, tell us, where were you born, what year, and what was your family like where you grew up? Wow. Uh, you, that's a great place to start because it all starts there, doesn't it? It does. Uh, and later on, when I get into the testimony, you'll see why, it, why it's so important. But I was born and raised in Staten Island in New York. Staten Island is the smallest of the five boroughs of New York City. Um, and... I was born to a family of Italian immigrants on both sides. Uh, both my parents were first generation. My father was actually born on the boat coming over. No. And uh, yes, yeah, so he was born on the boat, and then my grandparents settled in Little Italy in New York in Manhattan, and then eventually obtained property on Staten he was Island. Born on, on the, the boat. boat. He was born on the boat. Born on the boat coming over. So, what nationality does that mean? Uh, well, he he actually. I didn't realize until just recently. My dad passed in 2003, but technically he had dual citizenship. So if I wanted, I could actually file for citizenship in Italy as a citizen wow. and maintain my American citizenship. But that would take a lot of work, but I could do it. <laughs> so Staten Island. Now, for those people who are not American... Uh -huh. And especially not Eastern. What's Staten Island? Well, can any good thing come out of Staten Island is the first question you want to ask. Staten Island is the, New York City. Now, New York State is huge. New York City is what everybody knows New York about it around the world, the, the, the Big Apple. So New York City is made up of Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. And Staten Island is the smallest of what they call the five boroughs of New York City. So there's a population on Staten Island of under a million. Is it that you 800,000 people whereas Manhattan is 23 million. Manhattan's where all the big big yeah, buildings are. Yeah, right, all the big now, buildings. Where where was the Statue of Liberty? Where Statue of Liberty is 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 in the harbor. Is so you've got Battery Tunnel um, Battery Park, and then you've got Ellis Island, and in the middle of all of that, uh, by Manhattan, you've got Lady Lady Liberty. So your parents came into is it, you know Ellis Island. My grandparents came in through Ellis Island. They're on the records there. That would have been uh, nineteen in the late nineteen nineteens, in wow. the teens of the of the twentieth century. So um, the Roaring Twenties are about to start. Yeah, the, yeah, right. The mobs. Right. The right. whole deal. Exactly, all of it. Okay. So, Catholic, obviously. Yeah. Uh, well, ironically, now here's this is important for my testimony. Um, my great uncle on my mother's side had been radically converted to Christ as a young man and started the first Italian Protestant chapel in all of New York City no. and and literally got all the Mateys and the Sharonas, which is where I came from, all in the same congregation. So my, my, my great uncle Frank Matei was a, was a godly 
Protestant preacher, started the first Italian Protestant chapel. My dad became the church organist for no. him at 12 years old, and my great uncle had three congregations. Talk about multi-campus back at the turn of the century. My, my, my great uncle had three congregations on Staten Island, and my dad would ride his bicycle between services, and the services were geared so that he would have enough time to get to the next service before Uncle Frank would preach. To play the organ. Play the organ and play for the choir. Oh, that's amazing. So Twelve you, years old. You were raised in God. I was raised in a Presbyterian... Well, by the time I came along, the Italian Protestant chapel had so grown that my... And at the time, Princeton was still not quite as liberal as it became Princeton theological. University. Princeton, yeah. And so it was the feeder school for most Presbyterian pastors. Princeton University. Princeton University. And so and my grandfather, my great uncle was tied to Princeton and to Bloomfield. And so he became part of the Presbyterian Synod of New York. And so by the time I came along, it was a Presbyterian church. Really? Yeah. So your family was mostly saved were and Italian still, Protestants at that okay. and were you still most surrounded by well I, I wouldn't say they were mostly saved my <coughs> my great uncle was saved they were nominal nominal I would say they were nominal and were they still pretty close to the edge with all the life of the Italian oh yeah absolutely I mean you know they, I, I that's what I'm saying my great uncle didn't have as much of an impact on my family as you know I guess you know you can take that verse where Solomon says a little with righteousness is better than nothing at all, or you know, a little, a little righteousness is better than nothing. You know, so so there was a they were God fearing. Um, they certainly they certainly understood the scriptures. They had a value for the scriptures. But what, I mean, I I would you know it, back then, <coughs> and I mean it wasn't that we didn't hear the gospel, but there was by the time I came along. It became known as the social gospel. Okay. So that social activity, um, and I, I think I think there's merit in 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 what I understood and came to grow up in in the social gospel. However, I think if you flip the words from social gospel to gospel social, I think we need to put the gospel first right. and then deal with social issues, and not social issues first and the so gospel as an the advent of liberalism. It was the advent of liberalism. Yes. Okay. So you're growing up in. Italian New York. Very much so. And you're, very you're close Italian community. Absolutely. Some of them are in the mob? Um, I have um, I have family that were certainly connected Associated. at some... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, tell us about your early upbringing. Like, what were you feeling about God? Um, you know, at four years old, uh, my mother was my Sunday school teacher. So I can remember hearing the stories about Jesus and even praying to Jesus as a young child. But by the time I was 12 years old, I became very disillusioned. Um, I was the typical guy that said, Christians are all hypocrites. I don't want it. But I was. But the thing is, I would hear when the preacher would talk about the stories where Jesus did miracles. I would hear those stories and say, but if Jesus is who he is, then miracles must be real at 12 years old mm -hmm. but because i didn't see that but but by that time my great uncle was no longer the pastor um and th those that filled the pulpit they, they believed the miracles were myths that were just a story that pointed to something so i got really disillusioned uh, because i was hungry for the supernatural really even so, back then back then so i began to dabble in metaphysics 
at 12 years old, metaphysics, psychic phenomena, ESP, and then ultimately the occult. And I developed a library by the time I was 15 of about 3,000 volumes of everything from esoteric Christianity and Rose, the Rosicrucian order all the way to metaphysical understanding and, and occult knowledge. Now, that was almost pre-Satanism. Yes. Like, uh, Anton LaVey hadn't done his thing. So Anton LaVey would have come on the scene when I was in college. So, if there would have been Satanism and witchcraft, you would have got that too? Uh, no, I wouldn't have gone that far. I, I, cause I, I, and really, ironically, I ended up having a dream that involved a demonic encounter. Um, or what I perceived to be a demonic encounter, and it just shied me totally away. I, I knew the enemy was real before I knew Jesus was okay. real. So you were looking for spirit, right? And that's where you were going. Exactly. Okay. So you have the dream; it scares you away. What's your lifestyle like at this time? Um, I was I was an only child. Really. And and so and, and that's a long story in and of of itself. And uh, it wouldn't be year till years later when I was in the ministry full time following Christ that I found out the story of my birth. Um, but my dad um, was injured in the war. I shouldn't even be here. Really? Uh, yeah, and it wasn't until 1985 when he's having a double hernia operation, uh, and I'm flying back into New York to go to Staten Island Hospital to visit him. I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on staff with Bishop Joseph Garlington, who has been my spiritual dad for all these years. Um, but I had been on a, on a trip. I was preaching, and I flew into New York, and I got to Staten Island Hospital to the recovery room while he was just waking up. And the doctor was ahead of me. I didn't know it was the doctor. And, and so the doctor's back was to me. My dad could see me walk in. He was groggy, but he could see me walk in. And the doctor was saying to him, well, Frank, we, was, we were successful in getting the double hernia taken care of. You should be fine now. Uh, we deeply regret when we, when we operate and we realize you're, you're clearly sterile. And so we regret you never were able to have children. That's what that came out of the doctor's mouth, and my father is looking at me with one eye while the doctor said, "Well, you better tell it to my son. He's standing right behind you." So he was sterile. He yeah, he became sterile. Yeah, he was injured, and in, he was in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge and was injured. Wow. And um, so, um, but when what I didn't know until then, my mother said, um, because again, my great uncle is involved in all of this. My great when when I was born. My great uncle walked in. They were going to name now Italians. You name the son after the grandfather. Okay. So John on both sides. So they were going to name me John Mark. And my great uncle walks in and says, "You know, we're too traditional as Italians." And he says, "You don't want to." He said, "We have enough Johns in the family." He said, second of all, if you name him John Mark, you're going to scar him for life." And my mother says, "Why?" She said, "Because John Mark." was the young man who runs out of the garden naked in Gethsemane, afraid to walk with Jesus. And it's not until he becomes Mark John that he becomes the gospel writer and changes the shape of first century Christianity. So if you want to give him a destiny, name him Mark John. Really? Yes, sir. That's how you got your name? That's how I got my name. And unbeknownst to me, my mom, apparently my dad and mom had talked about the injury in the war. Uh, before they got married. And my mom said in, on the honeymoon, she prayed a prayer. She prayed Hannah's prayer. Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you. And she said from the night, uh, from the night of the honeymoon, she knew she conceived. And every night she would go to bed and hear three bells ringing and she would go to sleep. 
and every 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 night before she fell asleep there would be three distinct bells ring ding 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 and, and this, this, I mean, this is this blew me away in 1985 when my mother told me. But I mean, it, it, ironic. But I mean, how God shaped and prepared her. Um, back in those days, when women delivered, they weren't awake. They were put under gas. Right, right. And with every shot of the gas, when she she said, "That's how God prepared me for delivery." She said, "Because when they laid me down on the gurney and they put the gas mask with every blow of the gas into my lungs, there was a bell that rang, and by the third bell, I was asleep. And next time I woke up, you were in my arms." And so that's that's she, would, she, she every that. night for nine months she heard those three bef before months. she fell asleep she would hear those three bells ring. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you're 15 again. Yeah. You're 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 you're, you're pushed away from the the metaphysical dark side. But I'm deeply involved in psychic phenomenon. I start the first ESP club in high school. And I've got friends that want to be involved, and we're sitting, we're doing experiments. And you're an evangelist. And, I, I, well, <laughs> and so I start this ESP club, and and so at night, my friend Gene and I, he'd be in his house, I'd be in mine, we'd be on the phone. He says, Mark, I've got a deck of cards. Need you to tell me what card I'm holding in my hand. And nine out of ten times, I knew exactly what card he had in you his hand. You do it? Yeah, back then. By concentration? Yeah. Yeah, by concentration. So you you actually develop powers. Yeah. Well, I get I get yeah. I mean, I, I obviously dabbled in the psychic arena, and and I came to understand some things. I obviously renounced that when I came to Christ. But I do think, be based on the way the Lord developed and shaped and molded my life, that I think the the leaning towards what we understand as the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom and discerning of spirits the prophetic function yeah. was was was, was all, it all was in me all along I'm, it, wow. because I, even as a kid there would be things i would know that i didn't know how come i knew them wow and so that sense was always around me okay so you're developing all these the club you're now did this make you popular not really, not because I mean, <coughs> I think it, <coughs> it made me a little bit weird. I think, <laughs> you know, because I mean, that, back then, you know, to talk about ESP and everything. It was it was a very small circle of people that, okay. you know, and but I mean, I had all the books, I, all the guys that were the latest guys in that world that were writing, because you know, the Rhine studies from Duke were being done at that time, um, in that. 10 to 20 year period, the paranormal studies out of Duke University. And so there was a lot of material out there to, to read on, on. Now you're a doctorate now, you're mm -hmm. studying, you've done this thesis, you're doing all this forward research. Were you always a student? Yeah, except I never felt I was smart enough. Now, And that, that gets back to being an only child. So my dad um, wanted to be a doctor and had two years of pre-med and then World War II broke out and he went into the war and when he came back <coughs> my grandfather basically told him I don't want you to be a doctor you need to take over the family business now grandpa when he came over on the boat the way he made a living was selling coal for coal furnaces blocks of coal and ice for ice boxes before there was a refrigerator there were ice boxes wow. and so the coal and ice business sustained grandpa raising six kids six six others died within the first two years of birth but my dad was the oldest of six of the twelve six of twelve and so that so as the patriarch when grandpa said <coughs> said i'm retiring 
he told my father, you're going to take over the coal and ice business, and now that uh, industry has changed, you're going, to go to, you're going to go back to City College in New York, and you're going to get your degree in business, and you're going to convert the coal and ice business to home heating and air conditioning, and you're going to put your brothers to work. And so Sharona Brothers Fuel and Air Conditioning is my father ran that business until they lost it in the 1970s just before I got saved. Um, so there was a lot, I mean, the dynamics of the hand of God and all that. But my dad vowed that because he wasn't a doctor, if he ever had a son, his son would be a doctor. So from the time I was old enough to remember, I was told I had no choice, I was going to be a doctor. So by the time I was 14 or 15, I began to realize I had no choice about my future, so I began to rebel against my dad. And so my, 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 my pursuits in terms of metaphysics, my pursuits were, I mean, he couldn't stand that. And then I loved music. I studied piano from the time I was four. My father was a musician. I told you he played the, the organ, but he, want, he never wanted his son to be a musician. So at 19, when I'm in my first year, 18 years old in college, my first year, I obviously, I go to the same college he went to, and I enrolled as a pre-med major, but I almost flunk out the first year because I can't handle inorganic chemistry and qualitative analysis. I just couldn't get it. And I said, if this is, forget it, if I can't handle inorganic chem, when I get to organic chem, I said, and I don't want to do this anyway, I don't want to be a doctor. So against my father's wishes, I changed my major to music. Huh, that's amazing. And, um, okay, so uh, this, when, when was the period you got a little bit involved going to wanting to become organized crime? Well, that that was that was at nineteen. I mean, so I'm already, and that's tied to the music. Okay. That's tied to the music. So you, you you start to play music. I start to play music. You play, I, and I start playing clubs, and I, now I want to make it in the entertainment field. I want to make it big. So you drop out of med, you go into music, music, and now you get into a new world. Yeah, now I want to be an entertainer. And this isn't the church world. No, uh-uh, no, I want to be an entertainer. I want to make it big. And Sinatra was, you know, in the Italian culture, Sinatra, Dean Martin, you know, the Rat Pack. Yeah. That was that's what I grew up on. And so even though the Beatles were popular, New York, New York, New York. I mean, even though the Beatles were popular and the Rolling Stones, I was a Sinatra fan. And so I wanted to be like Sinatra. And I knew enough to know that when Sinatra's career at one point began to decline, that the the mobsters helped him rebuild his career. And so I wanted to make it big so bad, I was ready to sign a contract with the mob. Okay, but and what, what does that mean? Well, I think here's here's the thing. Any you know, any time you deal, and back then the organized crime was a big deal. But in the entertainment field, it meant that you know if if they do you a favor, you have to do them favors. Okay. Now, um, do you know Frankie Valley? Um, uh, no, I mean Frankie Valley grew up in New Jersey, but I mean you know obviously the the Beach, I mean not the Beach Boys, the the the, 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 the four the Four Seasons yeah. were. I, I was big fans of the Four Seasons. But again, I mean we, we would have been in many of the same Italian type circles of influence that would have Especially shaped we went to New York last year and watched the Jersey Boys yeah. and it described the whole oh, relationship oh yeah the with with the mob yeah. yeah yeah and and because entertainment was money making right and so there were ways that it it could work and um, at the time there were there were a number of major families with territories in New York and the what one years? Uh, this is going back the late '60s, early '70s. So it's my friend. By now, it's 1973. It's December of '73, and I've got a number of lineups to do backup work for uh, various clubs in New York, uh, where we'd be fronting 
the Rat Pack. Uh, really? It's, yeah, yeah. You were in yeah, front my, of them? Yeah, I was getting ready to. I was getting ready to front them um, wow. in, in a couple of situations in what we call the Borscht Belt, uh, the Catskills. Um, and I, was, I had connections, but I really wanted to get guarantees. And so one of the families, one of their heads, was willing to meet with me and offer me a contract. Now, just describe what it means, the family. The head. What does that mean to a non-American, non-Italian? Well, 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 within 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 the the organized crime syndicate, you know, there are certain families that that are the heads of different things. Um, whatever the the whatever the whatever the issue is, they're over, or whatever involvements they have, then those are the families that control those industries. So at that time, there was five main ones. There were five main families in New York. Did you know them? Uh, I knew of them, and some of my friends were, you know, if I, I had one friend in high school that if you went over his house at Christmas time, they would, they would all at some point show up at that house. Now, was this almost like the movies? Uh, yes, very much so. Very the much Godfather? so. Uh, yes, and I, yes, I, that, that, yes. Okay. Yeah. By the way, that was filmed on Staten Island, just so you know. Okay. Yes. So, so the the wedding scene, all of that. I know most of everybody that was on that platform in the wedding scene. Really? Yeah. Like historically. Yeah. Yeah. The the two flower girls grew up across the street from me, Italian. What <laughs> <laughs> the, the movies made from you knew all those. Yeah. Movies. There was a lot of Italian people. Yeah. The musicians, I knew all of them because I, you know, I worked in the in the. In, I was part of. Um, Gianni Russo's father was my boss. You know, Gianni Russo had a part in in The Godfather, and Gianni's father, Lou, was my boss. He was the head of the musicians' union. So I, I, I went. Mr. Russ lived right across street. Mr. Russo lived right across street from us, and I said, Mr. Russo, I'm ready. I want to make it. And so he said, Okay. Here's what it costs to join the union. You join the union, and uh, everything happens from there. And he got me my first job. Wow. So you more and more. You just said, I want to make it. I want to, I want to make it. How far were you willing to go? Well, I was willing to go to the point where I was willing to compromise my integrity and, um, and do, you know, there's nothing glamorous about the syndicate. Um, but it does get glamorized when you're a young person growing up in that culture and it looks macho, it looks hip. And, and when you want something so bad you can taste it and you don't think about the consequences of that. You know, at 19, how many of us really think about the consequences of some of the craziest things we would do? And so I scheduled, um, I had one of my relatives schedule a luncheon for me to meet with this particular person and share my commitment to go ahead and do whatever it takes. Yeah. A leader. Yeah. Yeah, one of the heads. Okay. And the night before, at the very restaurant we were to meet at, the next day, the next day, uh, for the other four families, they there was issues going on with this particular family, and the other four families sent four of their men, one bullet each, put a bullet, four bullets in his head, and he was sprawled out at the very table that I was supposed to have lunch with him at the next day. And the next day, I woke up with the Daily News cover with him sprawled out on that table dead on the table you would have signed your life yeah away. yeah wow so so what and that night at my your heart then? uh well i well i mean obviously i said well there goes that opportunity you know but i mean i was devastated you know um at 19 years old you think well this is my claim to fame now i you know and that night at music rehearsal my my drummer who i called a jesus freak 
phenomenal drummer, but I called him a Jesus freak. Seven, 1973. 1973. So Dece- December, of- December of 73, the height of the Jesus people movement. Okay, and that, like two million have been saved. Uh, right. Teenagers right. across America in right. four years. And, and and I had put this band together within the last seven or eight months prior to that because of all the opportunities that were coming up. And this drummer, uh, I, I and I can't remember even how I connected with him fully, um, but he was willing to be part of this thing, um, not knowing everything I was getting ready to get involved with. Whoa. And that night when I told the story, he just confronted me and he said, you were going straight to destruction. And he said, you need Christ in your life. I said, how dare you tell a Presbyterian he needs Christ in his life? And he said, you don't know Christ at all, because if you could do that, how do you know Jesus? Jesus would never do that. And I, it, it, was, it was like, you know how when somebody can say something, but the voice of God is behind it and it hounds you? I couldn't sleep that night. And so, so I tossed and turned. Say it again. Say it again what he said. He said, there's no way you can know Christ and do that. Because Christ yeah. would not sign that. Yeah. He said so, and and I said, he said, what do you do if you don't make it? I said, I'll probably kill myself. You said that. Mm-hmm. Were you feeling that? Um, I, it came out of my mouth. I don't know that I was feeling it, but it was. It just came. And he said, well, then for sure you're going to be you're going to be a mess. He said, so you're clearly not thinking straight. He says, you don't know Jesus. He said, anybody that knows Jesus would value their life and cherish their life. Wow. And so it bothered me. He says, he says, you don't know Christ. And just him telling me I didn't know Christ got me mad. It got me so mad I was up all night. And somewhere in the middle of the night, I can't explain this to you, Wes. All I know is somewhere in the middle of the night, I turned over, put my face in my pillow, and said, God, if you're real, Jesus, if you really are real. And, you know, I had a, I had a poster. At the time, Jesus Christ Superstar yeah. was still on Broadway. So I had the psychedelic Jesus Christ With Superstar poster on my bedroom door. And I didn't even want to look at it that night because it glowed in the dark. It scared the bejesus out of me. But that night, I literally sensed the nearness of Christ. I can't explain it to you, but Christ revealed himself to me. I had an encounter with the triune God through the Lord Jesus. And my whole life was instantly changed. Instantly changed. My whole paradigm shifted. My whole awareness I asked forgiveness. I repented of my sin. There were things in me um, that left. I, you know, I, I look back now and say there was. I, I clearly got deliverance and didn't know how much deliverance I got back then. But I mean, I felt clean. I, I, whatever was defiling that was in me, that was demonic, that I had gotten involved with, it all. I, God, literally, sovereignly exorcised me that night. And then the Lord said, "I didn't call you to be the next Sinatra." And I said, okay. He said, I called you to preach my gospel. In that night? Mm-hmm. He says, you're not, he says, I'm the king. He said, Sinatra may be your chairman of the board. He said, but I'm the king, and I'm enlisting you in the army of God. You're going to preach my gospel. Wow. And I heard that as clear as I'm hearing you and I. Now, not audibly, but as an inner, inner voice. You knew it. I knew. He called me to preach. Now I, now I know for real my father's going to be mad. Because I went from I went from I'm not going to be a doctor to being a musician, which he hated. Then when I was going to make it big, he was able to live with that. Now the worst thing in the world would be to tell him I'm going to preach the gospel. Like that Uncle Frank, yeah, Uncle Frank and his brother John, my uncle John, who he saw struggle in the Presbyterian Church uh, as a minister and didn't want me to be involved in that at all. So he, 
I and we didn't talk for eighteen months after that. Really? Yeah. Eighteen months. Yeah, it was a long time. An Italian father. Yeah, yeah. He he was livid. Now, what did your mother do? You know, my mom just listened. Um, I think she <coughs> she knew. She all the time she went back to unbeknownst yeah. to me she went back to yeah. the whole thing of what she prayed, and realized that God's hand was on my life. So. Wow. So yeah. then. What began to happen? What did you do? Well, I, I finished college. I, gradu- I, I, I ended up almost double majoring in religion and music. I got my music degree, but I ended up studying New Testament Greek. I ended up taking a bunch of religion courses, and so I basically had enough to graduate either as a musician or as a religion major. But that was, was that liberal theology? Uh, well, I, I was exposed to all what would then be called liberal theology. Now it would be called progressive evangelicalism. Okay. So the term has changed now. But back then it was called liberal theology, you know, the post, uh, the, the Enlightenment theology that Karl Barth, uh, Gunther Bornkamm, Friedrich Nietzsche, the demythologizing of Scripture, uh, you know, the whole, the whole argument of the Yahwist, Elohist, you know, priestly, Deuteronomic tradition, JEPD for the Old Testament, not the books of Wellhausen. Moses. Wellhausen. All of that stuff. So I, was, I, I got exposed to all of that. Now, did that affect your faith? No, it made me more determined. Now, just so you know, my, my Greek professor, who um, is one of the leading Greek scholars in the Lutheran Church to this day, on our, at our final, you know, he didn't know what to do with me because I was too zealous. And, and for our Greek final, we had to parse Matthew 27, where in Matthew 27, uh, Matthew talks about how when Christ gave up the ghost that the rock split the earth shook and the graves opened and the the, yeah, the, the oh, saints wow. came out and he makes the statement this is the day before our final where he's helping us prep for the final we've got we're supposed to have a two and a half hour class and he's and he makes this statement it's a shame that matthew put this in his gospel this he, it's a shame that matthew put all this myth in his gospel and i said doctor i won't tell you his name i said doctor so and so i said if you doubt that that really happened, I doubt the resurrection has happened in your life. And he took his Greek Bible, he said the F-bomb about four or five times to me, slammed it down, and then looked at all the other students. He says, you're on your own. If Sharona can say this to me, I'm leaving. You guys fail or, or, or swim tomorrow on your own accord. I'm not helping you. And you can thank Sharona for that. And he walked out. Well, the other guys wanted to kill me. because <laughs> Now, I, he, he, I, I, I aced Greek. I aced Greek, so he could he couldn't flunk me. Couldn't touch he you. couldn't touch couldn't me. Touch I got you. I got A's, you know. <laughs> I had a bunch of potheads that were in the going into the ministry that sat next to me. They didn't they didn't they didn't do well. Um, <laughs> they weren't happy. No, they but I mean because they they would smoke and toke the whole time that you know that that they were supposed to be studying. But um, oh, but uh, yeah, so I mean I was exposed to to liberal theology back then. I was wow. 19, 20, 21. Now, are, did you become friends with this guy later? No. Uh-uh. no. I probably have left a major indelible memory for <laughs> him. He got saved in his life. Right? <laughs> he may be. So, so, so after you graduated, did you go into preaching? Well, after I graduated, I realized I wanted to get trained theologically. And my dad wanted me to go to Princeton. And I Princeton reacted. University? Yeah, yeah, he wanted me to go to Princeton. I had the grades. I could have gone. And uh, I said, no, I'm going to go to a Bible school in the basement of Brooklyn where I'm going to church. And at the time, Malcolm Smith was the pastor um, during Famous. the great during the great charismatic renewal. So, you know, I, I went to Salem Gospel Tabernacle, where Malcolm was the pastor, and Floyd Nicholson was the associate pastor. And any given month, you would have a Judson Cornwall, you would have um, 
uh, any one of those major voices back then, you in know, the 70s. Uh, in the 70s, were, were, were in our pulpit. And it was a major center for the charismatic How renewal. How many people were in that church? You know, the building only sat maybe 500, but it was packed to the balcony every Sunday and Sunday nights. Sunday morning, Sunday night. Sunday night. Stuff going on. Oh, Bible all the time. Bible school, outreach. Through. Yeah, I mean, it was a center for renewal. And this is Staten Island. This this is in Brooklyn, okay. 54th and 4th in Brooklyn. And um, How many people are getting saved? Uh, all the time, just people walking in off the streets, drug addicts getting delivered, I mean literally walking from the back of the aisle up to the altar and being cold turkey delivered by the power of God. Deep cocaine, heroin, uh, you name it, uh, amphetamines, barbiturates, people that were on all sorts of drugs. We saw them Acid. delivered sovereignly by the hand of God. Wow. Sovereignly by the hand of God. So this is now you're in the. I'm in the. I'm in. I'm in the height of it, and so I decide to go to this Bible school in the base, roach-ridden basement, and I'm sitting at the feet of ex-drug addicts, learning about Jesus and studying everything from theology, anthropology, dogmatic theology, systematic theology, ecclesiology, sacraments. I'm doing all of that in the basement of a Pentecostal church in Brooklyn, not knowing it's part of the Pentecostal tradition that every church should have a Bible school. Not knowing any of the fact that we were excluded from the theological table as Pentecostals, right. as part of part of the heritage of Pentecost, because Pentecost didn't start with the ups, ups and uh, up and up and comers. It was down and outers. You know that that the marginalized, the people that didn't have and were never recognized, they were considered stupid, and so we weren't. We you know. I didn't realize all of that back then. I know it now. Yeah, and, and you I, were not stupid. No, I wasn't. But it was a humbling experience. To have had to make the grades I made, and now I said I want to do this, and even though I loved what I was hearing, I realized I was more educated than the people that were teaching me, but it was a great lesson in learning how to receive from people that didn't have the worldly accoutrements of title and position, but boy, did they know Jesus. They knew Jesus. They knew Jesus. So how long until you began to pastor? Uh, well, that was three years, and um, and ironically, um, they never gave me homiletics by the time I was in my third year because they said I would never preach. They said, Mark, you don't have what it takes to preach. We're not going to give you homiletics, and I was so discouraged. Uh, yeah, they they said you don't have you don't have. You, You're you, one of the greatest preachers <laughs> there is. <laughs> they said you'll never preach, and so I, I you know so I, I I remember driving home that day really discouraged saying, gee, God, I really thought I was called to do this. And, and, and again, the whisper, the nudge of the Holy Spirit, just a little voice inside said, I called you. I need you to just listen to Brother Shambach and listen to him preach. And he was on every day on WWDJ in New York, 2.30 to quarter to 3. He said, just listen to Shambach and you'll learn how to preach. And you know what? Brother Shambach years later became one of my dearest friends. Really? And he was my hero. But I learned, I learned how to preach like a Pentecostal listening to Brother Shambach, and it was very simple. He would state a truth, he would illustrate the truth, and then he would apply the truth. So the, the, the basics of homiletics are state, illustrate, and supply. But I didn't get it sitting in a class. I got it listening in real time to a guy that was preaching to the people that nobody else wanted to go minister to. Wow. How long did you listen to him? Every day. I listened to him long after I, yeah. I mean, I, as long as Brother Shambach was on the radio and on TV, I mean, he was, I mean, up until, so just, up until he, um, <coughs> well, 
I, I ended up going back into the New York City school system to be a teacher because I had my music degree and I was at an educational um, credits. And so I became a New York City school teacher for two and a half, three years. And then it became evident that I wanted to go in ministry. And a door opened up for Ruth and I to leave New York and go to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Where Calgary. I yeah right not far oh, from you. Oh, freezing your butt off. Yeah, I went from I went from the land of the cold to the land of the frozen, and uh, so here we are in Calgary in 1980, 81, and I get up there and we were at John Lucas's church. You would know John. I know John. Yeah, you know, and so and John, his son, is now part of our network of churches, and um, but and John, John, his son was you know nine, ten, twelve years old back then. Now he's a grown man, got kids of his own, and grown kids. Um, so I was, and we were there with John for two years. But during that two years, I began to meet men and women that were part of what was called the Restoration Movement. That was the best of the latter rain yeah. from the 1948 outpouring. I met, I got to meet Violet Kitely, who became my mom in the gospel. Wow. Um, she laid hands on Ruth and I and imparted and released. I got to meet Dave Hubert. I got to meet George Evans. I got to meet George Fox. I got to meet Dick Iverson. I got to meet Frank Damasio. I, I mean, you name it. All of a sudden, God introduced us to a world of men and women that were not ashamed of what God was doing and that they saw that God was restoring yeah. things that had been lost historically in the church through the outpouring of the Spirit. Wow, that's amazing. So, just fast forward now. You tra you've traveled the world. I have. I've been all over the world. How many countries? Oh gosh, you ever try to count I, them? No, I, it's a lot. Like fifty? Probably. Yeah, and you've been on television. I've been on television so all over the world. So many times you yeah. can't count. Yeah. Your good friends, Lance Wall now. Yeah. Uh, Kim Clement. Uh -huh. Kim was very different. And Kim and I met Kim and I met in Pittsburgh in the early actually Kim and I were together in the same meeting when I was leaving Calgary and coming back to the States. I had connected with Ron and Karen Leach, and Ron and Karen were bringing this young prophet in from South Africa who could play and worship and prophesy, just like he said, Mark, Ron said, Mark, he's like you. He said, but I want you to hear him. Well, I sat way in the back, and when I heard Kim play, I realized I wasted my mother's money <laughs> practicing the piano because he was a virtuoso. Really? And then, <laughs> and then I heard him prophesy, and I said, oh, my goodness. This guy's got a fire in him. And then we finally fully met in Pittsburgh, in 1985, when Joseph brought him yeah. in, and and okay. uh, Joseph, of course, a great yeah. musician and yeah. singer. And so, so you guys became like almost partners in yeah. the, the gospel. Yeah, very much so. Amazing, yeah. amazing. So, just as we close, you've just gotten your is it PhD? I, I've got I this this one was a D min, and I'm actually just enrolling now in a third PhD program. A with, third yeah. PhD. Yeah, and you've done some intricate work on. 90 seconds describe what you're working on that's I, I can't even I can't even understand it let alone well when I got this last doctorate my my you know John 519 I did I, 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 I set out to do something that all the scholars said can't be proven and I'm not saying I proved it but I do think I have a reason to believe it you know John 519 at the miracle of the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda yes. when Jesus is interrogated by the Pharisees, he says, I do nothing but what I see my father doing. And so I set out to say, well, ask the question, well, how did Jesus see what his father was doing? What internally was going on? What was the realm of 
perceptuality that led to his ability to act. And they said, you can't prove that. There's no way to prove that. Well, I set out in my thesis to prove that we could know by the Spirit how Jesus saw what he did. Otherwise, we couldn't do the greater works. So and my argument by is that... The spirit. By the Spirit. And so the same Spirit that was in the last Adam is in us now so that we could do the greater works. So that perceptuality, the Spirit himself, is the Spirit of perception. Now, there is a certain aspect of internal processing that has to go on so that you can learn how to receive that. But, you know... So this is so amazing. It takes you all the way back to when you were 12. All, all to when I was 12. When you were searching, searching for the Spirit. God brought me all the way back. And you were trying to find out these mysteries of how does a human perceive, exactly. know, exactly. and could do these things. Right. Without knowing there was exactly a had no idea, didn't know what words of knowledge. I didn't know what the charisms of the spirit were. I mean, I, I knew about the Holy Spirit. I mean, as a Presbyterian, I heard about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I, in, in that's all I knew. I knew the doctrine. I didn't know the persons. So you searched for it all your life. Uh, yeah, my whole life. And now you spent your greatest pinnacle of research to study the true. What is it? Psychic. The true. Yeah. Spirit. Right. Wow. And so I'm not sure uh, I'll come up with all the answers, but I, I feel like my whole life has been shaped around understanding that the same spirit that dwelt in Jesus dwells in us. And the works that he did, we do in greater fashion because Jesus is no longer limited to doing them in 200 square miles of Palestinian territory. Now Jesus gets to go with Wesley to places he never got to go 2,000 years ago. And he gets to go with Mark. And matter of fact, Wesley can have an itinerary on one given month, and I can have an itinerary, and Jesus is going both places by the Holy Ghost and being unrestrained. And not, not just using Wesley and Mark, but Stacy can be one place, and Georgian can be somewhere else, and Lance can be somewhere else, and Bill can be somewhere else, and it's the same spirit, but he's no longer limited to showing up in one place. You know, that's beautiful. You know, just as, <clears throat> as you said then, as we're closing, when you said that, I su it suddenly occurred to me the cry of the human heart is to know the spirit. Mm -hmm. People look for spiritness, godness, right. essence, mm -hmm. like aura. I mean, people are spiritual. And they go to psychics, they go to uh, tarot card readers, they go everywhere looking for this. <clears throat> and your whole life has been about what is it? How do we find it? Mm -hmm. And now you've been trained to develop the world, the body of Christ, mm -hmm. his people all over the world, to do that which the human spirit hungers after, spirit to spirit. Yeah, because it's the, it's the Father's spirit. It's the, he's called the spirit of the Father. Wow. He's even called the spirit of the Son. He's never called the spirit of the Spirit. He's called the spirit of the Father and the spirit of the Son. So that says something about him and how he sees, how he sees things in relationship to the Father's heart and the Son's work. And so uh, it's want, he's an amazing make a, person. Make a decree over the listeners, you know, that their spirit man will be awakened and brought into alignment. Yeah, and to see. Yeah, and and uh, and those of you that are listening, there are many of you that are in a search mode. And the good news is, is that God is the self-revealing God. And when the triune God reveals Himself to you, 
in his son Jesus. He will do that by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the risen Jesus. And when he shows up, no one's going to have to give you an academic course on who he is. You're going to all of a sudden have your eyes opened and your heart made aware that Jesus is alive because his spirit lives in you. And all you got to do when he shows up is agree with him. All of us have to repent. And then we have to recognize that he's Christ and he's the Lord and bow at his feet. And then, yes, I would encourage you to obey God and be baptized in water and identify yourself publicly as a follower of Jesus and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of his presence to become everything God called you to be. That's awesome. Thank you, Mark Sharona. Love you, Wes. <clears throat> great, to, great to be with you. Great oh, to great hear to your be story. with you, too. Great to hear how one man in a family can change the destiny of so many family yeah. members. Uncle Frank. Yeah. God bless Uncle Frank. Yeah. And before my dad died, he came back to Christ. My mom has been, and they both sat in my church. Years later, they moved, they retired, moved down to Raleigh, and then moved down to Orlando. We're both members of the church. Um, wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, just how God has changed the whole family was his, I mean, I could tell you stories about family members that you'd have thought they'd never get saved. And God just used that story to turn their lives around. Fantastic. So don't miss the next installment of Conversions. Check out uh, Mark Sharona, Dr. Mark Sharona's website, all the books he's written. Follow him. So many things. God bless you. Have a great day.